HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host, Krishnandu Ray. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our fall season covers our newest issue, which is 23.3, which is now available online. It focuses on food and place. It tells stories of lost places, explores the interplay of food and locality, and considers the social dimensions of concrete spaces, such as the kitchen, banquet hall, factory, winery, and the supermarket. My guest this week is Sean Weyer. Sean is a PhD candidate in Italian studies at UC Berkeley and a lecturer in Italian at Balliol College, University of Oxford. His writing on food and culture has been published in Vittles and Eater, London. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, uh, diving in. Your piece is called Gourmet and the Ghetto, uh, the foodification of Rome's historic Jewish quarter. Uh, First, for me and the audience, could you do a little bit of scene setting? What is the Jewish quarter? How large is it? Where is it in Rome, etc.? Mm-hmm. So Rome's, so the, the former ghetto, which is really the area that I'm focusing on, is a very small area in what is now central Rome, right next to the river, really only a few streets wide. Um, it's now only one of a number of places in Rome that's got a Jewish community. There are around uh, 15,000 Jews living in Rome today, although, of course, numbers are never quite accurate. Um, And it's on the site which was for centuries the only place in which Jews were allowed to live, which was the Roman ghetto, which was a walled, enclosed area of town. It was really one of the least uh, pleasant places to live in the whole city, not least because it was right next to the river, so it flooded almost every year. It was cramped, um, it was squalid, uh, quite impoverished, and it was largely raised in 1888 after the ghetto was abolished. So the ghetto was abolished in 1870, more or less rebuilt. There were a few exceptions, but it was essentially rebuilt in a much less. So there are a few little streets where you can still get a sense of how cramped it would once have been. But for the large part, it's now 
a very pleasant place to 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 dine out as as we'll be talking about a little bit it's got a very wide sort of central boulevard which is the via del portico d'ottavia and that's lined now with with restaurants almost every other every other building is a restaurant whereas once it was previously a working class residential area with a few kind of mixed businesses particularly uh clothing and textile shops and and uh, by the way uh, the word ghetto itself is that an italian word it is yes so the word ghetto itself begins in venice in 1516 where europe's first enclosure of that kind compulsory enclosure uh was was declared and rome finished uh rome followed then only a couple of decades after in 1555 the the pope declares the the creation of the ghetto in all the papal states so this this idea of enclosing the jewish population in a compulsory area um, and forcing them to live nowhere else but that area sort of begins there really and so it's quite extensive in italy uh, from about what 1555 you're saying until about 1870 so 1870 is yeah so it's quite extensive in italy and the parts of italy that still had a jewish population at that time so in the uh, the the previous century the southern italian jews were expelled from sicily etc and so some of them even arrived in rome um and rome is the final the last ghetto to be abolished in 1870 so it was the last ghetto in, in western europe until the nazis uh reinstated the idea in the in the 30s so the ghetto is in that sense and and that's the difference you're trying to make between the jewish quarter and the ghetto ghetto is a form of structural violence confinement etc while uh, while the jewish quarter in some ways becomes a little more voluntary space right is the, and that importance is important so so the the ghetto is a is a sub is a subtype of jewish quarter if you like so a jewish quarter yeah exactly can be anywhere in the same way that for example uh you know Whitechapel in uh in London was was once a Jewish quarter it wasn't Jews weren't forced to live there there are plenty of examples of historic Jewish quarters that weren't ghettos but all ghettos were also Jewish quarters if that makes sense uh makes sense yes uh, getting into the food uh so what is Jewish Roman cuisine could you give us some examples Yeah, I can certainly give examples. It's a difficult thing to define because it overlaps so heavily with uh with Roman cuisine as a whole. Uh so there are similarities. Both of them emerge from the from what Italians refer to as cucina povera or or poor cuisine, which we've which probably most of the listeners are, are familiar with now. Um it's a tradition basically of making do with with cheap ingredients and what was available locally. but on top of that which the which the roman population uh, writ large also had to deal with it was a relatively poor working class population um jewish roman cuisine also developed obviously with the with the added restriction of jewish dietary laws and added legal restrictions on what jews were allowed to consume so as well as the uh, forcing jews to live in one area uh Jews were also prevented from eating various kinds of foods so they were prevented from eating all but the the least desired fish so pesce azzurro or blue fish which is basically anchovies and sardines were the only fish that Jews were allowed to consume and so there are various dishes for example like aliciotti con l'indivia which is um uh, anchovies with bitter greens that were devised kind of to make these relatively um undesirable at the time ingredient ingredients into something that was both delicious and nutritious 
Um, and there, there are other things, for example, the, so most of the Roman, uh, most Roman cuisine historically has used a lot of animal fat, particularly for, pork fat in cooking, which of course is prohibited by Jewish dietary laws. And so things like the, the, the frito misto tradition, for taking uh, cheap vegetables and offcuts of vegetables as well, things like um, zucchini flowers, which of course now are very desired, but at one point were considered sort of offcuts, a, a dipped in batter and then fried in olive oil, which is crucial because that of course then allows them to be to be kosher. So is, is the synonym kosher? adequate for Jewish food in Rome, or it kind of exceeds it? Uh, what's the relationship between, say, kosher and Jewish food in Rome? Uh, to some extent, it depends who you ask. There are, uh, there are Jews who keep, uh, who, who keep kosher very strictly. And so for them, there is, you know, for them, there is no food that they would consider both Jewish and kosher. But, you know, as one of my interviewees told me, there are as many ways of being Jewish as there are Jewish people. And so, you know, there are plenty of Jews who don't keep kosher at all. There are also gradations of kosher. There are gradations of of what one understands by kosher in different places and different times. Um, there's a there's a Jewish Roman tradition which is very specific to to this location. And it can be cooked in a rigorously kosher way or it can be cooked, you know, with with a little bit more laxity so there's one restaurant for example in the in Rome's former ghetto which is called which they refer to themselves as a kosher style restaurant so there's no pork but it's open on Saturday and you know they don't keep separate kitchens etc etc they they don't rigorously source all of their meat from kosher butchers so they can't they can't call themselves a kosher restaurant but the the food that they serve is is rigorously then in this Jewish Roman tradition these are very sort of time-honoured dishes. And, and kosher would, be, would need a certification, right? To be specifically kosher. Otherwise, it is Jewish style in some ways, right? Yes. Mm. And there's also, for example, there are kosher versions of dishes which arose in completely different traditions to the Jewish tradition. So there's kosher sushi in Rome's former ghetto, for example. There are kosher hamburgers. Various things that, you know, if you ask a... Roman Jew from a Roman Jewish family who can trace their background centuries into the past, they would say, well, you know, that's not, that's certainly not Jewish Roman food. You can argue about whether because it's kosher, it's also per se Jewish. That also sort of depends on your definition of both of those things, I guess. It's a slightly unsatisfying answer. No, no, no. This is a beautiful answer, in fact, which tells the difference between kind of in some ways orthodoxy and practice, right? And the multiplicity mm. of practice. That's kind of beautiful. It, this reminds me also, um, uh, could you speak a little bit to your methods? Uh, sounded like, sounds like you talk to people and, and you're also doing historical archival work. Uh, what kind of methods did you use? And uh, could you speak, speak to it a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I started my fieldwork, which really was a combination of interviews and participant observation, which in this case is spending far too much time in restaurants, um, talking to chefs, talking to waiting staff, talking to owners, also talking to other diners when I could. Um, I started this in January 2022, which of course was the tail end of one of the many COVID lockdowns. So that made some of my research a little bit more challenging. Most, I mean, most restaurateurs in Rome are, as a general rule, very, very happy to stop and chat. 
they were less so in January 2022 because obviously there was there was that restriction. So we spent a lot of a lot more time chatting in the cold on benches or you know in on, in outside seating under those gas heaters, sometimes with masks on at the very beginning. So it made it slightly more difficult, perhaps, to 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 start making report in in those first weeks, and then by February, certainly then by the March. So I spent three months doing sort of intensive research there. Really, by March, things were much different, and you know, tourists had started to come back. the 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 COVID numbers were much lower, and I'd also made built built up this this kind of group of contacts, really, who were very happy to introduce me to other people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So eventually, how many people do you think you eventually talked to and? Oh gosh, had um, interviews with. I mean, just had yeah, yeah. For, formal formal interviews around twenty, but in terms of you know little chats with with other people with waiting staff with with tourists etc. Many more, so probably more around fifty uh, to a hundred, I'd say. Excellent. So you write, uh, moving into the substantive part of your claims, uh, you write, uh, I quote you in the article, so like any cuisine, it is not the same today as it was in the 16th century when the ghetto was established. So uh, to give me, give me a bit of an idea, uh, some examples of what has changed and what might have stayed the same. So the single biggest thing that changed very very quickly when when the ghetto was established is the is this rapid impoverishment of the Jewish population. So it it came alongside obviously a restriction in the in the types of jobs that people were allowed to and were were physically able to 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 do because they were confined into this area. Um and so this cuisine that had been considered to be one of you know one of the a, a very rich and varied cuisine made made up also of sicilian influences which i've spoken about a bit earlier um spanish influences influences also even from german populations who'd moved to rome to escape uh to escape uh, violence um this this relatively sort of well regarded cuisine very quickly becomes a cuisine of of making do with whatever whatever was left so that's the main difference i suppose i think the other big difference when we talk about now in the in the modern context is the kinds of places where one can find this cuisine because historically it was a domestic cuisine by and large there were a few there was one restaurant in particular which was in in the area which was jewish owned um but it didn't it served sort of classic roman cuisine it wasn't known as a jewish roman restaurant uh whereas so this this phenomenon that we have now of people going out in rome to eat jewish roman food is a relatively it's a relatively new thing so i think that's been the biggest change and also the the variety of other things that are competing with this cuisine in the area is new so certainly up until the 80s or 90s you wouldn't have been able to get for example hamburgers in the area etc Jewish Roman cuisine is just one of the options available in this area whereas for for centuries it was the thing that you could eat. So uh, uh, when you are narrating this kind of transformation there's a sense that there's also a Jewish diaspora that's moving into Rome. Is there a a, a sense in which of course the Jewish diaspora is multiple it, mm. it 
different parts of the world. And so is there a stronger, say one of the divides we make uh, from New York City is Ashkenazi and say Mizrahi food, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, are those dis- do those distinctions matter uh, in the Roman context? And, and maybe there are other multiplicities that emerge. Could you speak to that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of the one of the many fascinating things in the Roman context is that this division does still matter in the Roman context, but it's much more complicated to make because the Italian Jewish community predates this idea of the Ashkenazi Mizrahi or the Ashkenazi Sephardi traditions. And so the Italki tradition is neither one nor the other. That being said, of course, not every Jew in Rome can trace their ancestry back to uh, the Roman Empire. There are various arrivals that we, that we spoke about a little bit before the ghetto was established. Uh, various communities arrived in Rome and influenced the food culture. Of course, now they are considered they consider themselves quite rightly to be to be very very Roman because they've been there in in many cases for over five hundred years. Um, but it's always been one of these cuisines since since those communities began to arrive that has absorbed these various influences and then has kind of domesticated them and they become things like the torta di ricotta e visciole, which is a cake that's made with uh, ricotta and cherries, probably was was a- arrived with the Sicilian Jews who brought this idea of making ricotta with them. But of course now it's one of the most Roman desserts in absolute that you can get hold of. Another interesting thing that's happened, though, is that then since the 20th century, particularly since uh, 1967, Libyan Jews arrived from Libya, which, of course, was one of Italy's colonies up until the the Second World War. And so you have this another influence then that is that's obviously a very Mizrahi, invisibly Mizrahi influence. These are dishes that are, to all extents and purposes, have a lot of a lot in common with other North African dishes. And so it will be interesting to see then in generations how these, the extent to which these dishes also get absorbed into this broader Jewish-Roman canon. How, how did you reconstruct that? For instance, the example you gave, like dessert of probably from Sicilian Jews bringing in. So how do you go about making a claim like that? Mm, what do you have I, to study? What do you have? Yes. I mean, it, these, these sorts of things are almost impossible to ascertain philologically because they, I mean, these we're talking about cuisines that are, to a large extent were conveyed orally. There are various stories that, that are met quite likely to be apocryphal about the origins of various dishes. They, I nonetheless take them seriously, not necessarily because I, I mean, believe they're 100% literal truth, but because they tell us something about the way that Roman Jews understand their their history to to look, and so I mean certainly you can look and compare, for example, at the at communities near Rome that at the that you know at similar times haven't didn't have ricotta, so you, you can potentially say to some extent that this influence is clear. And there were certainly things like the the aubergine, uh, the the eggplant in the in the US, um, which didn't exist or certainly weren't popular up until the arrival of Jews from Spain and from Sicily. Oh, excellent. Okay, uh, Sean, uh, we are at the halfway mark, so uh, we'll take a break and come back. 
Hi, listeners. We wanted to let you know that Heritage Radio Network's Julia Child Fellowship application is now open. The fellowship offers an enriching experience for aspiring food writers and journalists who share our passion for food systems change. The fellowship is a great way to progress in the field of food journalism and digital media and will start in early January 2024. This fellowship will provide participants with hands-on experience, mentorship, and access to an extensive network of industry professionals. The application deadline is November 27, 2023. Check out heritageradionetwork.org and click on the Julia Child Foundation Writing Fellowship link to learn more. If you or someone you know has interest in food studies and journalism, this might be a great fit. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and check out the application today. Thank you. Welcome back, Sean. We were, when we left, we were talking about uh, some of the complexities of sources of uh, Jewish cuisine in Rome and what can be Roman and Jewish and what is uh, in some ways the difference between uh, Roman and Jewish. Uh, in the article, you, um, you write about a sweet pizza. Now, for instance, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Um, and I uh, and now at last 10 years, I've kind of uh, taught at the Slow Food University uh, that's in the Piedmont and uh, I have not been exposed to it. So could you tell us a little bit about this uh, sweet pizza and its provenance in some ways? Yeah, this is a very this is a very fascinating thing. And it's very hyper local to the to Rome's former Jewish ghetto, really. So there's one bakery on Via del Portico d'Ottavia, which has been there. It is in, in this. It's been in the same building since the early 1800s. So it's the building survived the raising of the ghetto, and the bakery has been there on that site since then. And most people, it's it does have a name. It's called Boccione, but almost everyone who lives there or who works in the area or who has any connection to it calls it just Il Forno, the bakery. And it basically it so it serves a, a selection of things many of them sort of change throughout the season depending on religious festivals but one thing that's normally there is the pizza ebraica or what is also called the pizza di beride which refers to the brit milah or the the covenant of circumcision so historically this was a sweet dish that was made in order to celebrate a baby boy's circumcision ceremony and it has nothing to do with the i mean it feels like it has nothing to do with the Neapolitan pizza that we all know and love today, um, but clearly shares the same a, a same ancestor in the in the sense that it's a flat bread. It sort of, but it's more biscuit like almost than a than a bread. There are very if you go back into the Italian history of the pizza, there are various references to dishes that are called pizza, which really mean I think an unleavened bread or a sort of unrisen bread. And some of them are sweet. Bartolomeo Scappi, for example, in his uh, in the Renaissance describes a sweet pizza, but this one is 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 particular is even more particular still because it's it contains almonds, it contains candied fruits, raisins, and pine nuts. Which, coming back to this Sicilian influence, I think you can feel an affinity there with Southern Italian cuisine. Um, and you can still it's an incredibly popular bakery. It's a it's one of the main meeting points I think for Rome's Jewish community. You'll, you, you, there's so many conversations in the line. So there's a, a nice mixture between, I mean, there were also quite, lot, quite a lot of tourists in the know who kind of turn up there at 7am and they doggedly wait to get their pizza before they run out. Um, but it is a sort of, it's a crossroads in some ways. It's a kind of sort of place of sociability in the former ghetto. 
Do you eat this uh, typically as a snack in the afternoon or is this kind of associated with a meal? I think many people now have it as a snack. It's been slightly removed from, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's also still used at, you know, to celebrate the, the, the rite of circumcision. Um, but it's now also expanded beyond that context. And yeah, you see people having it with, I've had it with a, with, I've dipped it in a cappuccino before, which I'm sure many people will <laughs> think of as sacrilege. Um, but it, it somehow works. So yeah, I think you, you see people sort of extracting it from this original context. In, in fact, that gestures towards, uh, to my uh, Indian American year, you have a beautiful English accent. And when you speak Italian, you have a beautiful Italian accent. Could you tell us a little bit about your training and or heritage? How are you so good at both the British accent and an Italian accent? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so the, the, the British accent, so I'm actually Welsh, but I moved to England when I was seven. So you're, 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 the brain is so malleable at that stage that you kind of lose, um, lose any distinctiveness that you once had in your accent. Um, my Italian, I, so I started studying Italian in 2010. So my undergraduate degree was in Italian and German. And so I've been studying it for now 13 years. I spent various periods of time living in Rome or sort of doing extended periods of study, mainly in Rome, but also quite a lot in Sicily in recent years. So my PhD dissertation focuses on Sicily. So I've had enough time, I think, and been, you know, surrounded by the language for, for long enough that it, you can hear quite clearly that I'm not Italian, but I think probably to a non-Italian, you can, you know, it, it doesn't sound quite like an English person who's learning Italian. So I'm in a sort of liminal zone with my Italian, I suppose. Oh, that's a beautiful answer, in fact. And of course, in some ways for me, because I know Indian languages and, and my English, my Indian friends think I have an American accent and my American friends think I have an English accent. It's kind of partly <laughs> the memory of the old language is what an accent is. Uh, beautiful. Let's dig in a bit into your conceptual argument in the piece. Mm. So uh, you make this distinction uh, uh, between uh, gentrification and foodification. So uh, what's the difference and why does it matter? So I've chosen a narrow definition of gentrification, to, which I think was the intention with which the, the term was originally devised for, for the displacement of a residential population. Whereas foodification is about this sort of street level neighborhood use, whether it's a residential neighborhood or a mixed commercial neighborhood, uh, transforming then into a neighborhood that is overwhelmingly food focused. So you can think probably of neighborhoods that maybe they've al always been wealthy neighborhoods, so they, they, they're not gentrified neighborhoods, but they have transformed into food focused neighborhoods. So that would be an example of a, a neighborhood that's foodified, but not gentrified. So I think it is important to disentangle these two things, even though I think more often you do find them to be linked, right? So instinctively, we know this to be true. Somewhere like Williamsburg, Brooklyn, right, which, is, which was where the idea of foodification was born, um, is a neighbourhood that is both gentrified and foodified. Rome's former ghetto is also one of those neighbourhoods. But I think if, you, if, if, if we, I mean, I don't, I'm not strictly historian, but if one considers the, the timelines here, it is nonetheless useful to try and pinpoint these moments on, on the graph, right? When did the neighbourhood begin to foodify? When did it begin to gentrify? And that then is able to help us to, to ascertain, I think, 
what are the motors of these transformations? Because they're both incredibly important transformations. And I'm not trying to discount the importance of gentrification, but I think it is interesting to, to ask ourselves to what extent does food drive these transformations and to what extent is it, on the other hand, a symptom or a kind of result of these transformations? So foodification, would it be right to say foodification is a form of specification of a form of gentrification? Um, and in the piece, you write that uh, this foodification is about 20 years old and linked to tourism. Who are these tourists? So I think to begin with, it's, it's important to say that there are plenty of Jewish Romans who also dine in these restaurants. They, give, they also offer the opportunity to eat this cuisine in a way that doesn't require you to. I mean, it seems like a banal point, but it's also true that, you know, you do see plenty of Jewish Romans. Every, every, many Jewish Romans also have a favourite restaurant in this area. And there are, there are hot debates about which ones are authentic, which ones aren't, etc. But in terms of tourism, Rome has experienced a massive increase in tourism per se, which isn't unique to, to Rome, obviously. It's a sort of pan, pan-Italian issue, and I think to some extent a, an issue that many European cities have experienced because of cheap, much cheaper flights within Europe. I think perhaps even cheaper flights than sort of mid and long haul too. There's also been an increase, increase in food tourism. So this phenomenon which didn't really exist, or at least certain, certainly didn't exist to the same extent um, two decades ago, where people go to Italy specifically to eat certain dishes, and they're not just going to eat pasta in general by the sea, they're going specifically because they want to eat this one kind of pasta that you can only get in this area, right? And so as this becomes more and more specific, places with a hyper-local cuisine, I think, become particularly attractive as food destinations. And so Rome's former ghetto has really experienced that in in the past 10, 15 years or so. And then there's, on top of that, there's this, there's Jewish heritage tourism, which isn't just undertaken by people with Jewish heritage themselves, but there's also been a Europe-wide boom. And I think to some extent, a worldwide boom too in Jewish heritage tourism in for example, there are, there are Jewish museums popping up where there have never been Jewish museums before in Italy and also in places like Spain. Um, I'm sure there are, there are plenty of other examples too in, in Eastern Europe. So that's experienced a, a growth as well. So all of these things kind of converge into this perfect storm for foodification because Rome not, not only has what is potentially Europe's most, uh, Europe's oldest continuously present Jewish population. But it also has this hyper-local cuisine, which can be interesting to some people because it's a niche cuisine and to other people because it's a Jewish cuisine. So it has all of these things that kind of cross over in this very, very small neighbourhood. And in the piece, you also write about a strategic use of, say, Hebrew lettering and then how it works or does not work with archetypes, Italian archetypes of the Italian grandma, Nona, right? So could you give us some examples about like use of Jewish lettering, uh, which may not be about the information contained in the letters, but a signaling a certain kind of a heritage? Mm-hmm. So I think both of these really are ways of emphasising the heritage of the of the people who are cooking the food, the people who are in the restaurant, people working in the restaurant. Um, so especially you see with fried food in the former ghetto that it's um, 
often served on greaseproof paper that is made made to look like a Hebrew newspaper, which in some ways is an echo to an old Roman tradition, which which also existed in London, for example, in the UK, of serving fried food in newspaper. But Rome doesn't have a a, a Hebrew newspaper tradition, so this is a clever way of sort of merging a practice for which Romans sort of feel fond. They, you know, there is a there Romans are in many in many cases quite nostalgic eaters, and so this echo back to this way of serving uh, this way of serving a food that people, someone's grandparents might have been familiar with, I think is quite is quite evocative for them. But then also for people who are looking for authentic Jewish food, this signals to them that this is a Jewish Roman restaurant, regardless of what the food is actually. You know, some of the food will be will likely be Mizrahi food. Some of it may not even have anything to do with either Jewish tradition. Um, but nonetheless, it's a sort of staking of a claim. And I think it's linked in some way. I think you're right to ask these two, to, to, to ask these two questions together, really, because it's linked in some ways to this idea uh, that we see very, very, very clearly in the image of the nonna, of the Italian grandmother, being invoked constantly in in Italian food discourse as this like marker of authenticity. It's about cooking the same things that your grandparents cooked, whether you cook them in the same way really or in the same context. It's a sort of rhetorical move as well. There's one restaurant, for example, in the former ghetto, which is called Nonna Betta, named after the uh, the proprietor's grandmother. And, you know, the idea is, and I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure that it is true as well that a lot of these recipes were passed down through generations but it's interesting how often in the Italian context you see that claim being made. So some of this obviously entangles uh, uh, these restaurants or these uh, dishes with charges of uh, inauthenticity. And I think in uh, your paper, you also talk a little bit on this section about is this some of this a form of Judaism without Jews? How, how do you respond to this whole question of authentic, inauthentic, and is this just, uh, in some ways, the specter of the Jew rather than the Jew in the city in discussions? Mm. So to, to answer the final part of your question first, one of the things that distinguishes the this phenomenon in Rome from many examples, so in the history, in the study of Judaism in Europe, there is this concept of virtual Judaism, which which was developed by Ruth Ellen Gruber, which refers to Judaism or Judaica minus the Jews. So these are sort of restaurants, for example, in Poland, where the Jewish population was more or less, you know, in cities where the Jewish population was more or less uh, totally wiped out by the Shoah. Um, And nonetheless, you have Jewish restaurants popping up there or Jewish style restaurants popping up there. This can be distinguished from that because the vast majority of the entrepreneurs that are driving this uh, this development of uh, foodification in the former ghetto are Jewish themselves. Some of them are Jewish Romans, some of them have Libyan Jewish backgrounds, some of them have a, a, a various mixture of Jewish backgrounds. But certainly this development can be defended against that accusation. The question of authenticity is a different one because, I, I mean, I personally, I don't always think that authenticity is the is the best framework by which to to judge a cuisine but certainly in the same way that in other parts of rome people will say well look at those idiots eating eating paying 20 euros for tripe in a natural wine bar or something like that 
Um, in a similar way, you see, well, you often do, if you go to the bar in Rome, in Rome's former Jewish ghetto, there's one particular bar that is that's very, very popular with locals and locals with Jewish heritage. Um, and, you know, you will hear people saying, well, you know, can you really, can you really believe they're paying those prices for, for a fried zucchini flower? I mean, I've got zucchini flowers in my garden, you know, I've got them growing on my balcony. They're basically free. Um, and so these, these accusations, I think, are everywhere. You, we, I mean, one hears them in London with regards to, this is in speech marks, um, gentrified Indian food, right? You, you know, you hear people saying, I can't believe they're paying that for a biryani. Anywhere you go, I think when this kind of thing happens, these kinds of accusations will, will, will exist. I think sometimes we have to disentangle this thorny question of authenticity from the question of value. So, I mean, if you can say, well, you know, none of it's, none of it's necessarily authentic or inauthentic, that's sort of separate to whether it's, whether it's good or not, which, you know, depends on the restaurant, depends on who's doing the cooking, depends how, uh, how sensitive they are to, to, to various things. It can be done well and done badly. Um, but the, yeah, the question of authenticity, the more that you drill into this definition of, of authenticity, uh, the, the, the deeper a rabbit hole you can go down, really. <laughs> Uh, uh, Sean, we are reaching the end of the show. Uh, maybe any last thoughts? Um, what's happening with this project? Are you done with it? Is there more work coming down the pipeline? Some closing thoughts on, mm. on, on this work. There is more work uh, down the pipeline. So I've been also working on a something related to this, which is more to do with the origin stories that I encountered time and time again when I spoke to people about Jewish Roman food. So we touched on them a little bit in this conversation. That wasn't really what my, what my article for, for Gastronomica was about, but I'm hoping to, uh, to produce something that sort of looks at how these origin stories are constructed, how they're told, who's telling them, what they might be able to reveal about contemporary Roman identity, contemporary Roman Jewish identity, and to try and take it away, take the conversation away from the one question of, you know, is it true? Because, you know, you hear all these stories. I mean, they, they exist about Roman food per se as well, right? How, how was the Carbonara created, et cetera, et cetera. And rather than going into the history books and looking at, you know, when was the first Carbonara? When was the first menu that contained it? I think it's often more, more interesting and more rewarding to ask instead, like, what does the persistence of these myths or legends or whatever you want to call them tell us about the culture that we live in today. So that's one thing. I think this project then is part of a broad, broader project on the, the surprising intersections between religion and food in Italy. So I'm also doing a bit of field work in particularly in Southern Italy and Sicily, where I've been spending quite a bit of time on Saints Days and Saints Days sort of religious festivals that involve food in, in some way. So that's hopefully to come. That's beautiful. That's a kind of a nice, subtle way to finish this uh, conversation. So thank you, Sean. No, thanks for, for joining me. us. It's been a, it's yeah. been a pleasure. There was, there was real fun. I, I learned a lot. Uh, listeners will be able to read the full piece in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, issue number 23.3, uh, which is now online. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. 
And this concludes our fall season. We'll be back next season in early 2024 with new episodes featuring pieces from our newest issues. So subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated. Thanks. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.